Athletics Journal readers, I'm Catherine Druckman. I'm talking to Doc Searles, our editor-in-chief at Linux Journal, and David X, Chief Technologist, North America for the Public Sector at Red Hat. Thank you, David, for talking to us. This is really nice of you to put a spot on your calendar for us. No, the pleasure's all mine. Glad to be here. So so tell us a little bit about, about yourself and, and what you mm-hmm. do for Red Hat. Yeah, so I'm the chief technologist for public sector at Red Hat, like you said. And you know, a lot of people are like, well, what what is that? Like in a day and in a life, um, where a lot of it is is like uh, the myself and the team that I lead. We are the connective tissue between our executive customers and our uh, you know technical leaders in in the uh, in the industry, um, and connecting them back to our engineering and product folks. And so what. You know, so especially like being in the, you know, helping out our government customers, they have really uh, unique needs when it comes to security and regulations and things like that, highly regulated environments. So um, a lot of times in the open source world, you know, those types of things aren't the passion projects that are really exciting uh, in the Linux community. So what we do is we take those requirements back to engineering and our our product folks and say, hey, it would be great, you know, we can make our, our technology and open source easier to consume if you could add these features. And then we add the features in and then, uh, you know, it comes full circle where I'll do a lot of, uh, you know, public speaking talking about how, you know, when our products come out, how they are, you know, easily to, easy to consume in the public sector. That sounds great. So how long have you been at Red Hat? 11 years. Yeah. So when wow. I started, yeah, when I started, there were 1800 people. And uh, now we have, I think, over 13,000. That's about how long I've been at Linux Journal. <laughs> wow. Oddly enough, yeah. So speaking of history, so we before before we, we were doing this podcast, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is, you know, I think you have a lot of really great ideas oh full disclosure you are a member of our reader advisory board correct Mm -hmm. yes yes so so we have had this conversation with you about the evolution of the linux community Mm -hmm. Um, and you know we talk a lot among ourselves at linux journal and you know with our readers and other people about you know who who our readership is and 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 how we can best communicate with all the different segments, and I think we, we're finding that we that it's increasingly varied, right? You have mm-hmm. you have these old school free software enthusiasts who've been around maybe since the beginning, like Doc. Doc could tell us all about that. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> from the old. I was here before the beginning, whatever that right. was. <laughs> yeah. And um and but you also you know it, it you also have this this maybe probably younger crowd that um, came into free software in a much more mature stage of, of life where it's just something that's maybe slightly taken for granted. It's, it's this useful, great um, code that's just all over the place and allows them to do their job and make money and have a nice lifestyle and, and all of these things. And I don't necessarily think that all of them um, are aware of free software roots and, um, and a lot of the, the history behind it and so so we're we you know we try to to figure out how how to how to serve all, all of these various audiences but also maybe kind of bring them together a little bit if, if that's fair doc what do you think i mean it's a totally interesting set of conundra i i look at all of this try to you know through the lens of how how do we grow linux journal at a at a time when there's no story I mean, the, the, the stories, 
stories don't, you know, we're at happily ever after now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's one. Linux, Linux is a gigantic success. And it's sort of like, um, it's sort of like we invented, you know, Linux invented uh, lumber. And um, and lumber one, you know, everybody builds with lumber now. So mm-hmm. how, so we have lumber journal. How do we, you know, what's the cause here? What are the, or the causes? What is it that keep people interested besides the purely technical stuff, which with the, um, construction analogy is, you know, construction techniques and what are you using? And even in construction, they're, they're proprietary and non-proprietary things that are, that get mixed in. And so it's probably not a bad analogy, but, um, you know, how do, how do we expand out from that? I mean, cause we, we know we have a, a kind of hardcore audience, um, people or readership, it's not an audience, an audience that still doesn't say anything, but, uh, it just clap, right? But the but these are these are readers, and and we have people who pay to read something that they can read for free, which is mm-hmm. you know later, which is an, an interesting phenomenon. How does that? What's the motivation for that? It's kind of like the radio, the public radio model almost, I guess. You know, you can get it for free, but you can also pay for it. Um, so you know, it's it, it's really a matter of constituency. What is the what, what is that constituency? Where where do we grow it? What else do they care about? All of that. So that's just all ricocheting through my mind while you're talking there. Forgive me for sort of taking it everywhere after the phone rang. Oh, no, please do. So, David, I know you had some thoughts about this. Yeah, yeah. And and to me, it's like, uh, you know, I've been using Linux for, it seems like, you know, decades. And, and um, you know, back in the day with Linux Journal, I would eagerly be awaiting the next issue that would come out. And it's like, oh, there's a new version of Yggdrasil that came out or, or whatever the, the yeah. you know, distribution of the, of the month is. Right. And we could learn all about it and everything where, um, oh, well, you can actually get the X server to work and not catch your monitor on fire. Um, and literally. Right. Where where you would have these early early day problems. Right. Where, you know, like like what you all were saying is that, you know, right now it's like um that Linux has matured to the point where, you know, with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, we do updates and they're boring, right? Which is great. We've we've won, right? Um, but the other part is that that with that success, I think comes opportunity. So like if you, like the, the um, SC18 the supercomputing conference happened a couple of weeks ago, and then they they said that of the the top 500 supercomputers that are out there, um, uh, all 500 of them run Linux. And uh, number one and two are both running Red Hat Enterprise Linux unmodified. And so before I was at Red Hat uh, in 2007, from 1999 to, to 2007, I was at Silicon Graphics, where you know we transitioned from MIPS IRIX to Linux uh, Itanium and and then Linux x86. But you know we would always have uh, the SUSE distribution, which was pretty cutting edge, but still um, the SGI folks needed some extra patches and a tweak kernel and everything to, to light up all the hardware. But nowadays it's to the point where you have, it's not just a, a community uh, working on it in their spare time in the off hours. You have corporations that are working together like NVIDIA and IBM with their power systems and Red Hat to do an integrated system so that the stock operating system just works and it scales and it's breaking world records. Um, but the other part, though, I think is that from from a, um, a thing that excites me, though, is that now that it's really easy to install a single Linux box, you know, which used to be hard and you needed to be like a, a super genius to be able to get it going. And, and especially in the data center, 
people have made that early success and then their IT leadership would be great. Scale it out. And then, but whenever you go to scale it out, I think that's where the management problems come in, where, you know, having the management tools to be able to, you know, manage Linux at scale where, you know, it, there's a, a fixed amount of time it would take to manage a single system. Well, what if you have a room of a thousand systems or, or, or in the, in the world of virtualization, maybe 10,000 virtual machines. And now as we fast forward up to containers, um, which I think is another area worth worthy of exploration by, um, uh, uh, Linux journal is, uh, you know, the containerization is going to be the next hot thing that I think that's going to be going on. So I, I think automation uh, would be like a really cool thing to focus on. And, um, you know, and I know there's the Linux for suits column that uh, you guys would have. And well, wow, you remember that. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it's and but it's to me, it's like you could have these typical demographics of the 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 hobbyist that likes to use uh, Linux or like in my case with my daughter, um, you know, I, I brought her up on Linux. She runs Linux in college right now on her RHEL laptop in uh, in our computer science program. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll have the hobbyists and the STEM folks to get kids interested, but um, and then going the whole way into the enterprise. But then you also have the, the niche areas, too, of where Linux is embedded and people don't even know it where Linux could be running in your car or, you know, it's running on your telephone or so many other places that um, uh, that I, I think are, are really interesting things to think about from an exploration standpoint. That it, that's funny that you mentioned the sort of Linux is everywhere thing. I don't know about you, but, you know, back in the day, I was one of those people who would get excited when the, um, the seat the seat back entertainment on the plane would crash and reboot and you'd see yes. the little penguin get all excited. Oh yeah, there's Linux in there. Or you would find some uh, new consumer device or, or something that was a little, maybe less usable than others. And, then, <laughs> and that would lead you to the discovery. Oh, there's Linux in there too. Yeah. But, but now it's, it's, it's far, it's a far smoother experience, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what I'm wondering, though, like, so so we're talking about all of these sort of interesting areas and, and containers and and um, and that sort of thing, um, management at scale. And I'm wondering, you know, as we discuss the 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 merits of all of those things and the technology behind them and, and whatnot, does the the conversation do, does the conversation about software freedom get lost? How relevant is it anymore? And if it is relevant, how, how do you kind of throw that in to the conversation? Yeah, for, for me, I think that that is a big concern, especially as we move to cloud computing, where people aren't installing software anymore. The, 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 and, and open source, like you said, is everywhere. And I'm sure that most of the services that people use, like the backend uh, server applications of their favorite apps, are most likely running Linux. Um, I, I was at an event in New York City this week where um, we were co-presenting with Microsoft Azure, and um, you know we were on on stage hand in hand, and they they said that the number one operating system that gets spun up on Azure is is Linux, right? And but I think as things move to software as a service, um, people. Uh, look at it as that they care less about the freedom, you know, the, the free is in freedom, and a lot of it may be more the free is in beer. And if they can get the service for free, um, they don't care whether it's open source or not, as long as it works. And and to me, that's a concern. Uh, you know, people always need to have an exit strategy if they ever get mad at whatever, you know, package or tool or vendor they're using. 
So this is something that has come up a few times and I have mentioned actually. Um, so we had an article a while back, actually, I think it was by Glenn Moody about the Redis Labs licensing mm-hmm. controversy. Yep. So as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, basically, you know, the the people writing all of these, you know, the things that power uh, uh, elements that are being resold by people like AWS um, and, and the, the big tech giants are getting a little irritable about how, all, you know, all their great free software is powering things that are making a ton of money mm-hmm. and they're, though they don't perceive those companies as giving back enough. Um, and so the answer that the conclusion anyway, that Redis labs came to was to um, release some of their modules under a different license. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering not so much about that particular story, but about the sentiment behind it. You know, if, people are becoming increasingly maybe disillusioned with the ideals of free software. What does that mean, you know, for the bigger picture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of times of, of growing up on the tail end of the Napster generation, where I think a lot of times people think that, you know, it's like you are intellectually inferior if you pay for music. You know, it's like, why can't you use Napster and get it for free? Or why can't you get your software for free and use it? And then then it turns into this tragedy of the commons where um, you, you have this free rider problem where, you know, everybody's using the software, but no money is coming back. And that's something that at Red Hat we think about every day. It's a, there's one of the guys uh, that uh, uh, I work with, Brian Mickelson. Uh, he was in the sales organization and uh you know, you know, it's like we always talk about it's like, how do you make money selling free software? And it's it's with volume. Right. Um, and it's one of my jokes. Um, yes. But then, <laughs> yeah. And, but but what, what Brian would say is that, you know, hey, we make free software affordable, um, you know, in terms of the patching and being able to, you know, maintain it at scale. But I really think that um, that is something that should be a concern, especially as, as we move to the cloud that, you know, it's. Um, and I think these companies have to do it from a defensive uh, position that if, you know, if, um, you know, maybe they don't need to buy the licenses, but maybe there's some other way that, um, you know, Redis Labs can get a revenue stream from the people that are getting value out of using their software and building a business on it. I guess I'm wondering, though, about the larger repercussions of that. So, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 I sympathize with the motivation in in spite of the waves that it you know has um created but i just wonder like what what is the answer if you're an amazon and you're and you're you're taking these things maybe you're you're rebranding them as your own even which is completely fair game and you know Mm -hmm. under open source licensing um how do you address this so that you continue so that the the entire community and as well as Amazon continues to benefit from all of this great work that's being done, but at the same time keeps, keeps everyone as happy as possible anyway. Like that, I guess that's the question I'm getting at. And and we may not have any answers. Maybe there is no answer right now. Um, Is, 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 I had the mute on and I didn't know it. Um, uh, Is Amazon the culprit in the Redis case? Um, I, I may actually be unfairly, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think so. As far as I'm aware, yes, there was, uh, yes, there, I'm sorry. I'm looking okay. at the, the, the article right now. Um, and 
AWS rebrands a a product as something called Elasticash. Uh, but I, I I don't think it's it's this is not to pick on Amazon. I think you know others others are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Google, Facebook, you know, name name a big company worth a lot of mm-hmm. money, and they're benefiting tremendously from the work of you know the open source community. Yes, and I think that they need to, and I, I'd love to get Doc's take on this too. But you know, there there are ways that you could contribute back. So you know, one is you know you buy the enterprise licenses. And if that doesn't work, maybe there's a foundation, and you you're uh, uh, you know you buy into that foundation uh, to help fund that work. Or the other thing is you know patch code, assign engineers to the project as well, and be a key contributor. And and I think that um, that's one of the things that that I think sticks out and is a, a pain for uh, some of the folks. I think MongoDB is another uh, organization that's changed their licensing as well, where. You know, it's like people can use their stuff, but they're not even they're not getting money. They're not getting code back. And so um, they they have to react in order to stay as a viable business. But I'd love Doc's take on this. Yeah, me too. Boy, uh, well, they, they, I don't have a, a take that's anything more than um, uh, a hmm uh, with some detail. Uh I, I think it's it, this is always a judgment call. I mean, and that's sort of a problem with it. I mean, the um, one of the luxuries that Richard Stallman had by being an absolute purist about free software was that he could take a very single position and say, "This is it. This is, you know, uh, I'm in the center of the earth. I'm providing gravity, and I don't care what happens on the surface. You can do whatever you want with it. Gravity works fine." Um, and but when it, you know, up near the surface, you know, we, we have a zillion licenses or closer to the surface. We have zillion licenses from uh, the open source initiative, every one of which has was debated and debatable and remains debatable. And at this point, it's even an open question whether or not the licensing system fully covers um, what amounts to good manners. Right. I mean, so, uh, you know, in the case of, say, it, you know, an enterprise license, there's a. There's a, if we take the case of Amazon, it's an, an interesting one. Let's take a smaller one. Let's say uh, a Rackspace or a, um, you know, a, a smaller cloud provider, an Apple even, which is a little more aspirant in in that space. They could do, you know, they they, they could hire a company, the the, the company that, that sells the free software to to get the expertise. Um, behind it, that's tied to the actual people that write the code, or they could contribute to. You know, hire some people internally and develop a relationship there. There are probably a zillion different examples of how it is done, has done, and and could be done. The the, the question becomes, in the case of an Amazon, and I'm I'm going back to a conversation I had with um with Werner Vogels who started AWS, um, mm-hmm. uh, or at least the cloud part of it a long time ago, um, at a conference, which is their assumption going in, and this is way back. Uh, at the beginning is they know more than everybody. They just do. They, they, they're they they're too big and they're too committed and they're too, they have all the best minds on this thing. They're working on it. They do contribute back, but they're, they don't, they don't need a red hat. They've got one mm-hmm. <laughs> internally. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and they, that may even be a special case. Uh, and, and I, that one's close to my mind right now because I learned a couple days ago that the, I, and this is relevant, I think the idea behind 5G 
as you know, you know, our, our phones go up in G's, you know, um, mm -hmm. there was 2G and 3G and now 4G. And those stand for generation and LTE stands for long term evolution. Neither one of them means much. Um, but the idea behind 5G supposedly is that is a distributed one, which in Linux terms is a good thing. We want power distributed to the edge. We want everybody to have autonomy and freedom and the ability to roll their own and, and so forth. And and it's supposed to be, you know, there's going to be a cell on every on every house and tower all over the place. And there's going to be lots of storage at the edge and and lots of throughput. And there's going to be, you know, uh, fiber to all of these little nodes and then they'll be wireless from there out. And and well, what I was told was that actually it's a play by the phone companies to get back some of the business they've lost to Amazon um, hmm. with AWS and and that the. The cell is latency. The problem with an AWS is that if you have um, an application or a service that requires very low latency of just under a few, like say a dozen or less uh, milliseconds or microseconds, whichever it is, um, that it, it helps to have the storage locally or at least some part of it or representation of it that's sharded out locally. And 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 the idea is that there, it's an enterprise sell. It's not for you and me. It's for it's an enterprise sell to get back the business they lost to Amazon. And and what if that's true? What Martin told me in that conversation way back was was that the phone companies don't understand this business and never will. They just want to be in a position to do it. And that's because they had at that time. They were, you know, they they digitized all their. I mean, the phone system itself was going away and and going on to IP, meaning they really only needed routers. They no longer needed the big switches and the big buildings that were, you know, that consumed lots of power off the grid and had a microwave tower on top. And there were always one of these in the downtown of every of every city, and that all those places now. And he couldn't. He was reluctant to give me details on this. These are now running. You know, they are you know, Amazon itself is is hiring out in some of those places there. You go into one of those old data centers or they're actually called switches and you'll find Amazon or equivalent gear in there. I don't know if that's true or not, but the, his point was they don't they don't get it and never will get it. And 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 that that takes me in a roundabout way to to, to try to answer the question, because that getting it part of it is 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 to me like the key thing you know we the deepest part of getting it is that every one of us has a node on this network we all share even if it's distributed on your laptop or your phone by dhcp over your local wi-fi router there's an ip address for your house um that's your real estate on the net itself um you should have equipment that is open at its base so you can hack it yourself if you want to and and you can do things on it you can share and there's a base design below all of that that is open hardware and open software the open software is linux or to a lesser degree but a significant one with apple bsd and and the open hardware was the 386 architecture of of um of intel but yeah, it's evolved a whole lot, and there's just a lot of proprietary hardware stuff sitting on top of that, including out in your routers and the rest of it, and lots of calls from politicians and even people in business, and certainly from governments, to to well, let's let's stick all kinds of stuff in there that 
is going to protect copyright and is going to protect us from bad speech and is going to be able to help law enforcement. And let's put back doors in all this stuff and and let's focus on what the big platforms are doing, which are gigantic red herrings away from the loss of control that all of us have at the most local level, which is in our own homes and devices. And and I even worry about the containering uh, uh, Kubernetes and the rest of it um, trend because that masks, uh, and we've talked about this on other podcasts and in other conversations, but it, it masks the virtues that are down there at the lowest levels that are at the Stallman and Linus level that say that we should be in control of this and it's ours and not theirs. Uh, and where where I'd like to pivot this if we can, we may just bookmark it, is is how do we have we lost this battle um and if not how do we fight it because it's a really hard one because it's partly in our own heads there's too many distractions that are what's cool about the cloud or what's you know cool about um uh containers or what's cool about stuff that's higher level and you know, much more proprietary. So I don't so, know if that answers the question or not, but anyway. I think so. But so is there a culture problem? I mean, you know, this goes back to the thought, the reality really that, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. <laughs> the further away that we get from the sort of roots of, of free software, the, um, the more of a distant memory it becomes and, mm-hmm. and, and you start, you know, changing things and changing the culture and then the values maybe change in a way that that is maybe or may or may not be sustainable i don't you know i don't know but you know so it's sort of a culture problem is it a you know and then and then this goes back to the original question where where are we in all of this what's our role which i think we've discussed over and over again but frankly never gets old i quite let me tell you one reason it doesn't get old and and i just um i just wrote my february column about this this is my newest version of what used to be Linux for suits, because it's not just for suits, it's for everybody. But um, I, I've sort of, the name of the column is a line, you know, a line in the sand. And I see, I, I Joyce and I, Joyce is my wife, and she's also been with Linux Journal from the beginning. Um, we're at a thing in San Francisco, in San Jose a, a few days ago. And I won't say what it is because I, I, I'm going to say something negative and I don't want to be negative about them. These are all people doing really good stuff in the world. Um, and they, they're doing it through governments, they're doing it through nonprofits, they're doing it through lots of other things. But I realized mostly around a conversation that happened between two people on stage, one of whom was very insistent that data should be fungible data our data is being stolen from us all the time we're we're shedding it everywhere and it's really a commodity like oil and we should be able to sell it we need to be in in the data business and we should be able to make money off of that which i think is just hugely problematic and but that's not the point where that person was coming from was the notion that this can only be solved top down it can only be solved by the Facebooks and Googles and governments of the world and not by you and me. And um, that we essentially had no agency. Agency is a hot new word now. It's just an oldest word there there is. It simply means the capacity to act with full effect in the world, which is what Linux has always been about. I mean, it's like 
you know, I want to be able to write my own freaking operating system so I can do it. Um, that's agency. Uh, Linux operated at agency. Every kernel hacker operates at agency, and everybody running Linux operates with agency. And and that assumption is you don't have it. You don't have it. We've lost it. We have to let the government come in and help us out. We have to declare yet another human right and have the around data and have the United Nations come in and make a big declaration about it and add it to the the, the existing pile of human rights and um and and that we essentially have no power and when you know the other party in this conversation <laughs> said uh she wanted to uh i don't even know what she said um but basically it was basically it was that you know i don't i don't think government and business actually she was talking about business this guy said well business is going to solve this you know we're going to have a, a business that's going to solve this problem for us um and she disagreed and this guy said and I quote, intellectually, I want to drill a hole in your skull. <laughs> and it was like the whole room went, <gasps> and that a hole in your skull became, you know, as as somebody <laughs> texted to somebody else there, that everybody's going to walk out of there with that was the bone saw line in, in, that, in that gathering. But it really spoke to a, a, this line in the sand between people who want to solve things from not I, I hate to say linux is from the bottom up because it's not it's kind of like from the outside in or from or if it's from the bottom up it's from the geology level up rather than than from the administrative level down and and i think over time and this is the culture thing is that we get very caught up in all the things that actually are solutions right now and so, for example, we we were very involved in the turn of the millennium with um, uh, Jabber, okay, which became the XMPP protocol, and and had the foundations for being the way that we do chat and messaging. It we could have been, it could have evolved into it was originally an XML thing, I think, but it could have evolved into the one way that we have to do chat and, and messaging in the same way as we have one way to do mail with IMAP and SMTP uh, and so on. And it didn't happen. And now because of the lost culture behind the with the single virtue of XMPP and Jabra, which is let's give us one way to do this that's open and nobody owns and everybody can use and anybody can improve, um, we have a zillion different completely silent and proprietary chat systems. And that sucks, <laughs> you know, but nobody knows that it sucks. It's kind of like, yep, we're living with this and it's, there it is. So I don't know. Again, I'm sort of like all over the map on this, but I don't have a, I, you know, I, I'm a cause guy. I want to make shit happen. I want to rally troops. I want to get people involved. And I'm telling you, it's really, really hard to get a rise out of our readership it just is and i and i think there's a good reason for that they're busy mm -hmm. they're busy they, they had stuff to do and one more thing to do joining a cause of one kind or another is not high on their list but we're losing a cause here that we're losing the cause of free software and open source right now and i don't know exactly what to do about it hmm. well and i i think going back to the culture thing um i i agree that it's like there's there's I think a certain population of people that are the uh, open source true believers and like at Red Hat I would I would argue like per capita like 
we probably have on average more true believers than any other company on the planet in terms of believing in the open source model where we always get in the vigorous debates on, you know, if all of a sudden a proprietary tool comes in, you know, people object internally that, oh, you know, we should be using only open source and, and everything. And, and we have these healthy debates over, you know, making practical business decisions based upon what's available uh, from the open source community. But, um, but I also see from talking with a lot of our customers that, um, you know, and this is, you know, federal, state, local education, but even in the commercial sector as well and governments around the world, um, they don't care about open source. You know, they see it as a tool that does a job and it works. And, you know, so they're not the true believers or you know, there may be companies that that believe in the open source model as a means to an end to build a community and and to grow. Um, but they're not like open source in their DNA. And and so yeah. they use open source as, as a means to an end to get out there and have uh, market dominance in a particular area, but they use open source more as a weapon as opposed to a way of living your life. Yeah, yeah, it's like it, uh, <laughs> everybody believes in truth and justice, but do they practice it kind of, you know? Um, yeah. Um, I agree with you that I, I get a strong sense that Red Hat is is deeply steeped in that, and I and I I want to say that because I think that has a lot to do with Red Hat's success, um, where other other open source companies or companies that started in the open source movement have come and gone um, or came to a certain level and didn't keep growing. Uh, Red Hat has done that, and it's a really commendable thing. Um, it's a completely side thing, by the way. I. I lived in the Triangle for 20 years and um, and ran, I, I was the creative director of an ad agency there that was the first tech agency. And we moved to Silicon Valley in 1985. We really thought that the Triangle area where Red Hat is was going to be the next Silicon Valley, which mm -hmm. in a way it finally is. <laughs> it was like four yeah. years later. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, wow. But yeah, but I, 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 I don't know. I mean... I guess, I mean, so here's a, I mean, in your dealing in your sector with your, your own constituency, um, to, to, to what extent is, I mean, is open source tied in with what people do with their lives at work or is mm -hmm. it a more general thing? I mean, and I'm trying to think of, mm -hmm. and it's not really, really well put, but I'm, I'm kind of trying yeah. to, to a thermometer in it and see, mm -hmm. you know, what gets people excited. No, and that's a great question uh, because, like, if you think about it as uh, Linux, in the, you know, since we focus on on the enterprise software, not the consumer space, but in the enterprise, as Linux and just commercially supported open source technologies become more and more mainstream, uh, it's less. You know the the you know the 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 average person that uses it may not be the person that goes to lugs at night, and I and I do speaking of lugs I got to give a shout out to Rick Niemer and everybody at the Akron Linux User Group which I I, I help lead, um, but you know it's like for me it's like I'm I'm like a great big computer nerd and and I'm just so happy that I I get paid to have fun you know it's it's so exciting to live my passion and everything where for other people it's they work in IT they they punch the clock they go home and then they do something else that they're passionate about that isn't involving computers and I think historically they use a proprietary stuff that was safe and now that open source is safe that is a tool that they use and they use it they don't care whether it's open source or not and um you know they they go home um but 
there still is that cadre of of true believers that are out there that um, that are really passionate, and and that's the thing that I see with the growth of of meetups and Linux user groups, and you know, and and I think that the, the you know the Linux user groups are one of the ones that started the whole thing off uh, from you know the computer clubs and you know from the very beginning, um, but now you could have meetups for just ansible or you know docker or whatever whatever your favorite technology is so i think that's really exciting and that allows people to focus what their passion is on um but it really is is a um um a very different demographic that we're working with these days so we've we've really gone from you know just the the people that are really passionate about it and a lot more patient in terms of of mishaps to um now it's a safe choice and everybody's using it. So as a result, the the customer base that you have is a cross section of people that are the the true believers and the the rest of the people that see the technology as a means to an end and don't know or care whether it's open source or not. So given that you have these segments, the true believers, the the means to an end and you know you know, perhaps there are some that are just completely indifferent, you know, code mm-hmm. is code. I mean, I've encountered, you know, countless numbers of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, how important is it still? If you, you look at the true believers, what what do the true believers bring to the table that the other groups don't and vice versa? Mm-hmm. And bring to the table, and I, I don't just mean in the workplace, I mean, in you know, in the community and and. Mm-hmm. And whatnot, and I just I kind of wonder. I mean, I I like to I like to at least go into a into this with the, the idea that you know all of these groups have have value. You know, their their different perspectives are valuable, right? So so I'm just wondering how this all comes together, um, you know, to go forward. I suppose where 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 is the op- where is open source going to be in in ten years? You know, as a result of these different you know, groups of people. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's that, I love that question because um, there's uh, it's not just the true believers that are the consumers of the open source technology, but the people that believe in the open source technology. And of of the big conversations I have, especially in government, as you can imagine, um, you know, th- when people talk about digital transformation, it's it's more than just the technology; it's the people and the process. So if you know, if people are doing like old waterfall design processes and they're not doing DevOps and they're not training their people, they're not caring for their people, um, you know, it's you're going to have cultural problems and a lot of turnover and things like that. And all the CIOs that I talk to in the federal government say that, yeah, people and process are a bigger problem than the technology. And um, so one of the things that always, well, it tends to resonate a lot with them is like open organization principles. So where you, you have people that um, not just consume open source code, but they do open source within their agency and also like externally and share it with other governments. Like I, I got an email last night from um, uh there was a conference in Sacramento um, where the the city of San Rafael gave a presentation on uh, openness in government. And they actually, uh, a couple of the slides, they like our guys were surprised to see this. It, uh, a couple of the slides were actually quotes from um, the open organization book that was written by Jim Whitehurst, who's Red Hat CEO. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, to me, it's exciting to see that that culture um, change because I think, as as we think about it, where you have the people that 
use it as a means to an end or they're indifferent, um, that is those people are not going to be active participants in a Linux community, whether they're contributing code or documentation or going to a log and things like that. But if organizationally uh, for the end user part, if if they can foster a culture, an open organization culture, that would, I think, help us rebuild the ranks and and uh, uh, and and get people more involved in open source and and open culture. So. On along those lines, I'm wondering, so Doc and I are, have different experiences, obviously, than you do as somebody who works within one of these large tech companies. Um, I'm wondering, like, so the, the conversation still happens and is still relevant, the same conversation that happened 10 years ago about, about why open source, right? I mean, this is, you know, what you do. You go in and mm-hmm. explain to people why, you know, why should you use open source software? In fact, I was looking at a, an interview that you did. Um, which is highly quotable, by the way. I really enjoyed um, your answer to why would a software company want to make their source code available to everyone, including their competitors. And you said it allows companies to fight above their weight class, which I think is just a great quote. Anyway. Yeah. But so, th- so these conversations are still happening. Like I remember 10 years ago uh, doing an interview with um, a couple of CTOs, I think, and they were, you know, telling me about this new project they were working on together and how they had, you know, approached, I believe, um, somebody in the music recording industry with their this new web platform or something. And, and, and they were having to, you know, of course, sell them on open source because the reaction was, well, open source, that's like coding with your pants down. And I just looked at them and I said, well, at least if your pants are down, you have to keep it clean. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then this is like and this is a conversation we've all had so many times, right? And but I and and because we've had it so many times, we kind of forget that this is a, an ongoing conversation, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um so I guess I'm just wondering has that conversation gotten easier for you in the last let's say 11 years or 20 years? Oh, absolutely. Years or... Yeah. Yeah, for me it has. Um you know, it's like when I started at Red Hat in 2007, it was there were people that is this whole open source thing going to take off. And, you know, you can imagine very risk averse government customers to now the pendulum has, has swung almost completely in the opposite direction where not only are they con- uh, consuming open source, they're contributing as well. So it's it's really exciting. Contributing back is such an important part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's a top down leadership, too, because I, I would have a lot of government. Uh, people or um, uh, systems integrators come uh, come and you know they would want our code and I would be like I would love some patches especially for like security policy and stuff like that that they've written in their own labs and stuff and they're like well I don't know if I'm allowed to contribute code because I'm a govy or um, or other people would be like well this is my company's intellectual property and I get fired if I did it and and so it's it's you know, then you get the lawyers involved, and then it's it's just like it's a culture thing that you got to change. And to create that environment of sharing is is so important. Yeah, and then again, you know, re- reminding everyone on, on a consistent basis of the benefits of all of that. Yes, and that's that's the thing that that I, I one of the things I talk about is I I think it was a uh, the 2017. Um, uh, it was a uh, Linux uh, Foundation report of you know who who writes the kernel, mm. and I, I could get my numbers slightly wrong here, but um, Red Hat came in at we had like seven percent of the code in the Linux kernel, and you know and it's like 
that is actually a great thing. So for us, for every dollar of code that we put into the Linux kernel, we would get about $15 worth of, of code back. Or I'm sorry, for every dollar of engineering we put in, we would get $15 worth of code back and compare that to a proprietary company where you put a dollar's worth of co uh, dollars worth of engineering in, you only get a, a, a dollar's worth of code back because you're the only people that are working on that project. And so, you know, that's what, you know, going back to that article that you mentioned, that's, that's how Red Hat has been able to, you know, uh, fight above our weight class and, you know, back in the day against Microsoft and, um, and the proprietary, uh, Java applications and all that, uh, just because you know we were working together as as part of a community bigger than everybody else. Right. So, so an interesting um, thing here in respect to the amount of code um, that's come from Red Hat people. Uh, quite a few years ago, I, um, I had this great conversation with Dan Fry, who was then uh, with IBM uh, and in Portland, Oregon, and you know, I, IBM famously said it was you know investing a billion dollars or two billion in Linux. I mean, they never really broke that out. I mean, I think they just meant really that they committed that much to it. Um, but they started they started with Linux really when they found out, and they told me this that that most of their of their engineers were already using it, um, mm -hmm. and. And so they basically went into compliance with their own engineers. But Dan told me it took IBM six years before they realized that they had to do what their kernel hackers wanted rather than vice versa. That that it, it's actually wrong to say that IBM was itself contributing code to the Linux kernel, but rather that I, people who worked for IBM contributed the code and IBM supported them. <laughs> but right. it was that that the, the key thing was that um that the main thing is that you have to understand that by you and i mean in a third person general sense sense that that kernel hackers that the alpha maintainers are the ones that they're working for the kernel they're not working for any company and and they're working for the larger purposes of of linux which transcend the parochial interests of any of any single company and that's really the that's the that's the thing that matters you know mm -hmm. it's that you're you're doing this for everybody and not just for yourself and that's sort of to, to me what the core of the culture the the core of the culture itself is it's that what can we do for this thing that works for everybody and for all the new purposes that might come along like a different kind of inflection points when we go to 64-bit or we go to a new file system or some other thing like that, um, that, you know, that we're doing this for, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and that kind of gets lost because it's almost easier to talk about the companies, you know, it's, you know, I mean, one reason I think that, that Linux is less interesting now is it's not fighting Microsoft, you know, it's like, right. you know, I mean, it's like the, we, it isn't just that we won, you know, I used to have this business partner that he was infuriating because if you won an argument with him, he was suddenly on your side and you lacked the satisfaction of having sense that you won. You just say, yeah, you're right. Okay, now. And and then you proceed. <laughs> and it was confusing. And that's sort of what's happened with Microsoft. And um, the, but I, but I want to get back to the, to, to, to that culture thing again with, with a question for you, David, of what are the things that aren't about 
Linux or open source or free software that in your experience the constituency cares about? Is it that is it is it privacy? Is it sort of personal freedom? Is it fairness? Is it what? I mean, I'm I'm just wondering mm-hmm. what what are the sort of other subjects that could be causes that our constituency actually cares about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think, you know, for a lot of this stuff that with when it comes to, say, like open source software, um, you know, people talk about talent a lot and, you know, on the speaking circuit with millennials and, you know, they they want to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And mm. so if they could point to um, their GitHub stats of the things that they contributed, um, that's something that they take pride. Oh, in. wow. That's a good one. It, yeah. And compare that to like working for, um, you know, being a, a small cog in a giant machine writing code and and nobody knows even what, you know, who wrote what and, and things like that, where where here it's like this is something people could take pride in and share. But the other part is the the gratification that you get when somebody else uses your your stuff. So um, have, have you ever uh, heard about adopt a fire hydrant? No. I think okay. so, but tell tell us about it because yeah, I, so this is like a classic story. It's uh, like Code for America, you know, back in the day. Um, they did a hackathon, and one of the the uh, up in I think it was in Boston, and what came out was a project called uh, Adopt a Fire Hydrant. So the problem was that um, you know in in the city you would have fires, and you know your house is burning down, and the fire company is uh, having a really hard time finding the fire plug. Uh, the fire hydrant in the snow. They got to shovel it out. They got to connect the hoses and then put the put the um, fire out. And so what people could do is they came up with a web app that said that hey, you could adopt a fire hydrant. And um, so you're going to pledge to um, uh, make sure that it's the, you know the fire fire hydrant outside your house is clear of snow. And you're going to do that all winter. And it's and it's great. Um, and so that was pretty successful. And what was interesting is that um, Hawaii actually took that code and they used it themselves. And then you're thinking, why, why would Hawaii want to use, you know, fire hydrant code to keep snow clear? Um, what they did was uh, uh, adopt a tsunami siren. Right. I was going to say this has to be it. Yeah. Yeah. And because what was happening is that you, you would go on a hike up, up in the mountain and you'd have these tsunami sirens up there and people would steal the batteries. And so what, yeah, which that's great. Talk about tragedy of the commons. But, um, okay. But, yeah, and then but so people could adopt a tsunami siren where they could go on their hike. They can go up there, and make sure the battery's still there, and and give it a checkbox. And and so I think the the pleasure of of seeing your code live on um, is something that's really gratifying, especially uh, like with my public sector customers where you know they can't pay like Google grade uh, wages, right, compared to the um, you know, government salaries. And so it has to be all about the mission and, you know, and, you know, whether it's, it's like, a, you know, cool things where you're launching satellites to, um, I met with folks in, in uh, New York city this week that were doing uh, child welfare and they, you know, their whole goal, they told me is that, that they want to be out of business. They know they're successful if, if they're out of business where they could, you know, there, there are no children that are being abused and everything. And so, you know, getting people to um, have that that passion and purpose in their work is really important. And I think open source and open culture could really drive that. 
Wow. Well, on that note, but, <laughs> that's really yeah, great. That's now I, I, my faith in humanity is restored, except for the battery. <laughs> except for the battery. Not all of humanity, but just the operating operating parts of it. Yeah, so only the the cool geeks. The rest, yeah. I'm not so sure about. Well, let's an, an interesting part of this, and and um, is that human ingenuity it, it verges on the infinite, and and having the least restrictions on that, or having having projects, having things like that, um, are, are, are proof of it. You know that that and and that that people people basically want to help each other out. I think I think that's. Um, I mean, somebody else at that conference I went to pointed out that war has been in human history for the duration. But I think being good to each other has also been there. And I think trying to build the infrastructures that we need and keep them operating in a in a in a communitarian way. I mean, that the, the story of the of the hydrants and the sirens, which sounds like a good blog title right there, um, uh, are typical of that. You know, you know, people help each other out. Um, you know, they do things, they will do things for the, you know, not only for the good of the larger community, whatever that happens to be, but also for the satisfaction of it. And even for self-interested reasons, like I've got this monstrous number of GitHub commits or something, um, that, that stuff matters too. You know, I mean, it, mm -hmm. it shows that you're, you're part of something. Um, anyway, so those are, yeah. So that, yeah, it, it does, it does, it does keep my faith going. Well, we're we're all definitely part of something. <laughs> we, you know, we have those two listeners out there. I'm just kidding. I think, yeah. I think, uh, I think we're, you know, we're doing some good work, all of us. So. Yeah. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to put in a little reminder that um, you can reach us at podcast at linuxjournal.com with feedback. I haven't said that in a while. So. Uh, I, I think I think I think we're good. I think that we we talked about some really good stuff. Yeah, so we ended on a high note. We'll have yeah. to be